Okay, good morning. It's great to see everybody post-Pesach, surviving, standing on two feet. Just a reminder, our Yom HaShoah program is this Thursday night. It uh, promises to be a very uh, powerful and moving program with uh, teenagers interviewing survivors and then taking a pledge to the survivors at the conclusion of the program. It's uh, this Thursday evening. begins with a live hookup with our teenagers in Poland on March of the Living at 6 o'clock, then Mincha, then the program. So please uh, join us. Details are all listed in the weekly. The Shabbos, we continue with the reading of Parsha Shmini. We're now uh, well into Vayikra. And uh, Shmini begins with uh, the story of the inauguration, the opening day at the Mishkan. It was the eighth day. Eighth day of what? It was the eighth day of the inauguration. It was the 23rd of Adar, and uh, Moshe had functioned in the capacity as the Kohen Gadol in the dry run, and now it was time for the, to begin. It was time to get started. And uh, Moshe has to call upon his brother Aaron in order to step forward and to begin. Moshe invites Aaron. All the commentators are bothered. What do you mean, Kravel HaMizbeach Va'aseh? Why does Moshe have to invite Aaron? So Rashi tells us, Aaron Aaron hesitated. Aaron resisted. Even though Aaron had been training, even though Aaron was distinguished and designated in this unique role, when it came time, when it was the moment to perform, Aaron hesitated. Bosh, he was somewhat embarrassed. And he was fearful to approach. And Moshe appeases his brother and says, What are you hesitating for? You were born for this. This is the fulfillment, the realization of your potential, of your role. So uh, some Hasidic uh, Rebbe, some Mephorshim, explain what Moshe was really telling Aaron. It's a very beautiful idea. We've discussed it previously was, What do you mean, Simple understanding of Rashi is, to fulfill this role. You were created. You were born to be the Kohen Gadol. You are the first Kohen Gadol ever, the inaugural Kohen Gadol. You were born for this. You were made for this. This is what Hashem had in mind when He created you. But they explain, no, lekach nivcharta, lekach. What does the lekach go on? Because you were bosh v'yare lageshes. Lekach. Aaron, your humility. Aaron, because you hesitated, because you're so humble that you don't see yourself in the starring role, lekach, it is that quality, then nevcharta. That's the very reason why you are chosen. The other Mepharshim explained, why did Aaron hesitate? He saw the corners of the Mizbeach stick up. And when you're looking at the Mizbeach head on, you see the corners, the Karnei Mizbeach, the corners of the Mizbeach that protrude, they look literally like a bull with horns and like an egel. And what was Aaron reminded of? The Cheta Egel. And he hesitated. He thought of the Cheta Egel and his role. Perhaps a passive role, but he could have objected more strenuously, and he didn't. So that's why he hesitated. He thought, I don't have the merit. Who am I? What am I? How could I possibly play this role and be the leader? And that's what Moshe was saying. Lekach. It's that very hesitation. It's that very humility. That's why Lekach. That's why you were chosen. I was just reading an article yesterday in the Harvard Business Review, an analysis of Lincoln's um, Gettysburg Address. And, uh, you know, it was two minutes long, which is first of all why it's perhaps the greatest speech of all time. It accomplished so much, it freed the slaves, and uh, it was only two minutes long. That's an incredible, as a speaker, I can tell you that's an unbelievable achievement. To say something in two minutes is a remarkable achievement. But anyway, in this analysis of why was it so persuasive? How did he shift? How did he transition or transform the opinion of a nation? How was it so persuasive? It's a fascinating article that investigates it. But one of the things it notes is that Lincoln uses the term we and us. He uses that pronoun rather than I. And the article says that people are much more persuasive, others are more impressed and buy in when the speaker doesn't use I. I this and I that and I accomplished and I plan and I think and I strategize and I and I and I and I. But rather when they use we, they get buy-in, they get partnership, they get investment of the, of the listener, of the audience, and they also are promoting a certain sense of, of humility. 
and that was part of what Lincoln's accomplishment and it was suggesting the conclusion was that leaders of organizations should make sure to communicate in the we now it can't be the royal we and nor can it be humility for the sake of ego in other words, look at me, how humble I am that I say we rather than I. It has to be genuine and authentic. It was a fascinating article. So Aaron has that genuine humility, like Moshe, their brothers. And Aaron says, Aaron had to be invited. Moshe had to tell him, new approach to Mizbeach. Don't hesitate. You were either the simple pshat, you were born for this, or the additional layer pshat, not that you were born for this, but because you're hesitating, that's why you're our man. In other words, uh, Yeshua needs to go recruit a new shul president, uh, officers, you need to recruit people to lead the committee. person who says, often, I shouldn't say always, often the person who says, I'll do it. I'd love to see my name on the letterhead. I'd love to be in the position of uh, the spotlight. So that's not the person you want. It's the person who turns you down a couple times and says they're too busy, and you see all the accomplishments in every other area of your life. That's the person you want. The person who resists and hesitates doesn't need the attention, doesn't need the focus. That's why it's a halacha of a shleach tzibur. You're supposed to turn down the gabai a few times. You don't say, absolutely I want the absolutely I'll lead the davening. I want the spotlight on me. You hesitate. Aaron hesitates. And lekach, it's that hesitation, it's that pause, it's that humility. It's that Aaron ultimately accepts the role and responsibility because of the organization, because of the mission, rather than about himself. Lekach nevcharta. It's for that reason that Aaron is chosen. Okay, so that's the beginning of the inauguration of the Mishkan. And Aaron comes to the Mizbeach and he slaughters the Egel HaChatas HaShelow and he sprinkles the blood and uh, begins the, the functioning of the Mishkan. On that opening day, which should have been the happiest in Aaron's life, Aaron is designated. This is his swearing-in ceremony. This is inaugurated. This is his installation ceremony. Aaron is the inaugural Kohen Gadol. What a remarkable, extraordinary role, which should have been the happiest day of his life. He, of course, suffers profound and unimaginable loss with the sudden and abrupt death of his sons, Nadav and Avihu. Nadav and Avihu bring what the Torah describes as an Eish Zarah. They bring a strange fire that God had not commanded. Asher Lod Osam, and what's the result? They die immediately. Vayamusu lifnei Hashem. It's not the purpose of our study today, but uh, you should investigate. You can listen online. I think we've spoken about it in the past. What precipitated, what caused this horrible result? What did Nadav and Avihu do wrong exactly? Some say they didn't want to have children, they didn't want to get married and have children. Some say they were drunk. They entered the Mishkan intoxicated. And what's the compelling evidence for that argument? Because the very next section is the prohibition to enter the Mishkan drunk, which certainly supports the notion that what they did wrong was they drank. But the most uh, popular reason which is given, it's fascinating that the text doesn't tell us the reason explicitly. There's a lesson to be learned from that alone. But the most popular reason which is given is this notion of an Ezra, is that Nadav and Avihu brought something that wasn't commanded. It's a very powerful lesson for our time. The Beis HaLevi expounds on this. That... Even though they had noble intent, Nadav and Avio sought to connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They were bringing a carbon after all. They were bringing incense. They were trying to connect to the Almighty. They were trying to pursue spirituality. They had noble intent. But ultimately, Asher Lotziva Osam. Ultimately, if you want to draw close to the other, you can't do it through the vehicle or the means or the mechanism that you feel is right. You have to listen to what they want. It's a matter of fulfilling their need, their request, their command. Gersh Baruch Hu gives us a very strict formula of what it means to serve Him and what it means to ultimately find meaning in our lives. And we are not empowered, it's not encouraged that we use creativity in order to create new forms of worship and ideas and so on. There's creativity within bounds. There's no question there's been a development within halacha. There's no question there's innovation within halacha. A few weeks before Pesach was uh, a major yard site of Sarah Schneer, the founder of the Beis Yaakov movement. And they, uh, I forgot which major arena in the New York area, they rented and filled with Beis Yaakov girls and Beis Yaakov schools. And it's an amazing thing that what we view as the sort of right-wing segment of our community celebrate Sarah Schneer to such an extent today. If you look, what she did was radical. It was a tremendous radical innovation. So there is room for innovation. But what Nadav and Advio did was outside the bounds of innovation. 
They tried to create a new ritual, a new ceremony, a new practice, an innovation which was too radical. Asher lot siva osam. And even with the most noble intent, and even with the greatest pursuit of spirituality, if it's not mandated, if it's not with the um, consent, and if it's not with the support of a um, consensus of of authorities of the time, that it's something which is uh, foreign. And it's something for which there was a, was a great punishment. We're not encouraged to explore and be creative outside the bounds. There is room, but, uh, but it has to be something which is done with consensus. So Nadav and Aviyah are struck down. Moshe tries to comfort his brother and says, Bikrovai Ekadesh, that Hashem had already said he was going to be sanctified with those most closest to him. So you see, really, Nadav and Aviyah were the holiest. Don't be so distraught by their loss. Vayidom Aaron. And Aaron's reaction is Vayidom. Complete and utter silence. And again, the text is ambiguous. Was Aaron silent in defiance? Was Aaron silent in protest? Was Aaron silent in anger? Was Aaron silent in um, despondency? Was Aaron silent in grief? Or was Aaron silent in faith? In pure and complete faith? We're not sure. Perhaps you can read into Vayidom Aaron those two words. What we choose, what we see is a precedent that we don't always have to have words. We don't have to fill the vacuum and the space with words. Silence, as we know, is a virtue. Chazal tell us that all of my days I learned the most because I never found something more valuable than the capacity to sit silently. You know, Revolbe says, Revolbe, the great Mashkiach of Yerushalayim, writes, when children are young, we teach them to speak. And we're so proud when they begin their first word and then they begin to enunciate more words and they figure out the sentence structure and we're so proud that they know how to talk and we encourage their speaking and we teach them to speak, we teach them to read and to speak more and to read out loud but we never teach them to be silent. And once they start speaking, we so encourage them to be on that role of speaking, says Revolba, we forget to teach them the equal or perhaps even superior value which is, which is of silence. And here Aaron teaches Vayidom Aaron. You don't always have to have something to say. You don't always have to react. You don't always have to fill that vacuum of silence with words, particularly in moments of profound grief where the words don't come, where the words don't come easily. This is a, a very important section. We've studied this in the past too. You're welcome to look online. Again, the next section, as we alluded to, is the prohibition of drinking in the Mishkan, which makes sense why you would think that what Nadav and Aviyu did wrong. There's a beautiful Chassam Sofer. What Nadav and Aviyu did wrong is they looked at their uncle Moshe. Why would, why would it be they would be punished for saying they didn't want to have children? And why would they make that commitment? Why would they make that pledge they didn't want to have children? Where did that come from? Chassam Sofer develops this idea that they looked at their uncle and they looked at his family legacy and they saw, you know what happens? They looked at their father. What happens if you're a communal leader? What happens if your time belongs to the tzibur? What happens if you're public property because everybody looks at you and talks about you? What is left for your children? What happens and what becomes of your family? They saw, right? What do we know about Moshe's children? They did not, there was no uh, continuity. They, they did not inherit the legacy of Moshe. They're relatively anonymous and invisible in the Torah. And they look at their uncle, they look at their first cousins, and they say, our fathers, the Kohen Gadda, we're about to inherit this. It's not fair to bring children into a world that we're going to neglect. It's not fair to bring children that we're going to neglect. So it's better that we'll just devote ourselves to the tzibur. Again, it was a noble intent, but it was something that they should not have concluded. It was an inaccurate conclusion, and they were held accountable for it. Okay, Parsha then really ends with the laws of Kashrus. We have the uh, prohibitions of which animals you're allowed to eat, which animals you're not allowed to eat, the strict laws of kashrus. We've also studied this in the past, and we've analyzed all the different reasons which are given from Marishonim, what the origins are of uh, kashrus among animals, split hooves and shuitz cud, among uh, land animals, among fish, among birds, among insects, and so on. We then get into some of the laws of purity, some of the tara, and, uh, and the parsha ends with a reminder of this instruction of of uh, Kasha. So that's what I want to look at today is the very end of the Parsha. Parakidav, Pasuk Lamates, chapter 11, verse 39. It's on page 604 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Okay. The Torah is in the middle of telling us the laws of Kashras. 
and interrupts telling us the laws of Kashrus for some details of Tumah. If an animal that is in the category it's permitted for you to eat, meaning it's a categorically kosher animal, chews its cud, it has split hooves, but it dies, not through Shechita, so an animal that is potentially kosher, but it dies not through shechita. So that animal has the status of what we call a nevela. A nevela is an animal carcass. Get hit by a car, it died of natural causes, it was shot by a hunter. That uh, carcass is a nevela. And a nevela is metame. It contaminates the person who has contact who has contact with it. Someone who were to eat from it, which is of course prohibited, would um, would become tame as well. And not only they, but their clothing would need to uh, would be tame until the evening. Person who carries this carcass. So that's the uh, laws of uh, of Tuma. What's going on here? Look at the Rashbam, Pasak Lamates, says the Rashbam, If an animal is shechted, it does not have the status of a nevela. When you uh, go to kosher market, you go to Winn-Dixon, you buy your steak, you buy your deli, it does not have the status of a nevela. It had proper shechita, and therefore it would not leave the individual who touched it, carried it, or consumed it, would not leave them tame. That's true even if the animal is a trefa. We use that word treif in Yiddish to mean anything non-kosher is treif. But the word treif, trefa, has a specific definition. A trefa is an animal, potentially kosher animal, an animal that has the signs of kashros, that has an illness or disease that it cannot live for a year, 12 months. So such an animal, even if it has proper shechita, that animal is a trefa. Right? And the Marchulan gives a long list of the different trefas. What are the illnesses present in a disease? And how do we identify those illnesses so that we know that, in fact, the animal was a trefa? It was unable to live 12 months. It was unhealthy. And therefore, even if you shecht it, it remains prohibited to consume. For example, some of the trefas are found in the lungs. So lesions in the lungs, punctures in the lungs. lungs. That's where the term glot kosher comes from. Glot means smooth which is in the inspection of the lung. There's a hider, there's a, a stringency, which is glot, a level of smoothness, which Ashkenazim Paskin is unnecessary, but today it's become a universal observance that we only eat uh, glot. In my childhood, and I'm not that old, I still remember the butcher selling glot and non-glot. You could get non-glot meat. I don't even know if you could get non-glot meat if you tried today. Today everybody observes this uh, stringency of glot uh, having to do with the, the lung. So the Rashbam says that when is it an Avela that is metame? If it's a potentially kosher animal, but that was not slaughtered properly, it, uh, its carcass is an Avela and it contaminates. But if it's an animal that had shechita, even if it turned out to be a trefa, after you shechted it, you inspected it, and you found it had an illness and could not have lived that amount of time, so retroactively you've learned it's a trefa, nevertheless it's not metame. Aval ben Avelas when it comes to a non-kosher animal, it doesn't mention shechita. Why? Because a non-kosher animal, even if you did shechita on it, it's a nevela. The carcass of a non-kosher animal, even if you tried to shecht it, not only would it not be kosher to consume, but it's nevela, its carcass is, uh, continues to be metame. And Chazal learned this from Chulin from the fact that it says min ha some behemah is metame and some is not metame. Even a trefa that you shechted, that's tahora, is not a nevela. So it's tame, it's, I'm sorry, min ha means that even though it's ineligible to eat because it's a trefa, but nevertheless it's spared from being metame because it is. It, uh, it had a proper shechita. Okay, so these are just some of the laws of what's metame, not metame. We don't have a base of Mikdash today. We don't have the implications of having to go to the mikvah at night or bring your clothing if you have contact with the corp and so on, with the carcass. But these are some of the, uh, the halachas. Okay, Torah continues, passing my mouth. Any, what, uh, for lack of a better term, we call a creepy crawly. A sheretz is an uh, insect, a bug. 
So anything that uh, crawls, creeps on the ground, sheketsu lo yeachel. It's considered to be. Um, it's considered to be an abomination. It should not. It should not be eaten. Says Rashi. The fact that Torah here is describing an insect that crawls on the ground, it takes away a mosquito, a fly. So we're not talking about things that fly and that you find within your food. Kozman, as long as it hasn't crawled along the ground. But if it leaves your food and it crawls along the ground, then it is included in this prohibition. So it continues, Rashi, Lo yeachel, l'chayev alamachel ka'ochel. What's a sheretz? Something that's low to the ground, that has short legs. And it's uh, something that uh, wobbles, wanders along the ground. Says the Torah, everything that crawls on its stomach, and walks on four legs, up to the numerous legs, among all the things that crawl on the ground, you're not allowed to eat them, they are an abomination. In other words, not only are they included in prohibited foods, but they're an abomination. If you look in the passage, you see, the vav of gachon is elongated, it's prolonged. In a Sefer Torah, if you open a Sefer Torah, you'll see that the way it appears, the Sofer writes the letter vav in gachon, elongated. Anyone know why? Because it is the middle letter of the entire Torah. It's an indication that you've reached the halfway point of the letters of a Sefer Torah. And there is a significance. We know the amount of letters in the Sefer Torah. Supposedly, Shishim Rebo, 600,000, corresponding with the Jews. A letter for every Jew in the Torah, even though that's not the real number. But uh, we know there's a significance to the notion of the letters of the Torah. And our, um, our Soferim, Sofer is a play on words. It means a scribe, but it also means somebody who counts. They know the letters. They're familiar with the amount of letters, the amount of words, the amount of parshios. We have significance to all of these things. And the letter Vav here is elongated for that reason. It says the Pasuk, if it crawls on four legs, or a kol marber What's marber aglayim? Zen adal, says Rashi. Sheret sheish l'raglayim eroshevi adzanvo l'kan l'kan v'korein. And Rashi quotes from the Old French. What kind of insect is this that has legs from its head all the way till its tail, all along its body? Centipede. A centipede. In old French, Rashi writes. Centipede. A nadal. So the Pasuk is including whether it's four legs or it's covered in legs from its head to its toes. Toes being some of the legs, I guess. Um, then, it, uh, then it too is included in this prohibition and is something which is a abomination. Mem Gimel. Do not make yourself repulsive by eating um, these insects. Do not become contaminated by them, which Rashi says, Don't become contaminated by them by eating them. Because if you do, you'll be contaminated. Why the redundancy? What's the Pasuk mean? Do not contaminate yourself. If you do, then you'll be contaminated. Isn't that obvious? Why the redundancy? If you contaminate yourself, then you become contaminated. What else is an anomaly? What else is strange? The word bum. What's missing from that word? The way it's spelled? It's missing an aleph. Lo titamu. Shorosh of titamu is tes mem aleph. Vinit mesem bum should have a aleph. Vinit mesem bum. So, uh, where's the aleph and why the redundancy? So Rashi tells us, Vinit mesem bum. Im atem metamim bohem et boaretz. Afani metame eschem baolam abo. Uviyeshivas mala. The redundancy is, if you ignore, if you dismiss, if you disregard what I'm telling you down here, if you come to the conclusion, ah, who cares, does God really care what I put in my mouth? These minutiae, these details, who cares, it's just food. I'm a spiritual person, I pursue spirituality. Who cares what I eat, does God really care? If you disregard the discipline of uh, kashras, if you eat these foods you're not supposed to, if you eat it down here on earth, 
then God's going to be metame eschem ba'olam haba. It will affect us and influence us up until the world to come as well. If you look at the Ibn Ezra, he says, "Veloti tamu bahem ki adua ki agufa neachal yishu baser begufa ochal." This is similar to the Ramban in Dvarim, but he says, "The gufa neachal yishu baser begufa ochal." You are what you eat. The qualities in the food influence you in terms of your character. Now, this is not crazy for us to to understand or to relate to, because we know. From a nutritional standpoint, science today investigates all the qualities and character traits of, of all the food that we eat. This increases cholesterol, this lowers cholesterol, this is good for your heart, this is bad for your heart, this makes you health, this makes you fast, makes you thinner, this does this. Food even has the ability, different foods we know, have the ability to make you more patient, to make you sleep better, to make you more calm. Foods have impact on fertility. Foods have impact. So foods, science has caught up to this notion that different foods have an impact on emotions and feelings and have impact on health and have impact on so many different things. So the notion that the Torah is telling us not to eat certain animals because the character traits and the qualities of the animals are imbibed, are absorbed when a person eats them. The Ramban says specifically about animal. Why is it certain birds? When it comes to the animals, we know that we have a criteria. Split hooves and choose its cud. When it comes to birds, how do we know which birds are kosher? What? We have a Masorah, we have a tradition. Torah doesn't tell it, gives us a list of birds which are kosher and says, otherwise you're not allowed to eat them. So how do we know what's included in that list, what's not included in that list? So there's a whole discussion in Halacha, and ultimately... What we conclude, Ashkenazim, is that it follows a misora. We have to have a tradition going all the way back that that particular bird is kosher, which is why there's a controversy around turkey. There are many who don't, some who don't, I shouldn't say many, some who don't eat turkey. Turkey was a new world bird. There's no misora corresponding with turkey. It was discovered in the new world. Oh, so we don't eat, so some don't eat turkey. The Yaakov Kamenetsky, Zatzal, didn't eat turkey. Of Shechter, Yibadol Chaim Tovah Arucham, he doesn't eat turkey. There's some who don't eat turkey. How do we eat turkey if you eat turkey? Because we say the turkey has the same character traits, parallels as a chicken. It's another species similar to a chicken. And so we're allowed to apply the uh, tradition of one that fits into the category and we can apply it to become the tradition of, of another. So which birds, the Ramban says, Torah gives us a list. Which birds do the Torah conclude are permissible and which are forbidden? And the Ramban says, the birds that are forbidden to consume are birds of prey. They catch, the Ramban writes in graphic detail, they go after an animal, they catch it in their claws, they tear it apart while it's alive, and they eat it. And says the Ramban, that bird of prey has achzarius. There's a cruelty to it. And if you were to consume it, if you were to absorb it, then you would absorb that sense of cruelty. Which again, until now you'd say, ah, come on, come on. You are what you eat, you really absorb qualities. But we see, science is saying that different foods have impact on our emotions, sleep habits, health, and all kinds of benefits or liabilities. So there's uh, certainly... Um, this argument of the Ramban makes sense. So the Ibn Ezra here is saying the same thing. The, the qualities of the Nechel um, place within the, the flesh of the person who's eating it. Ibn Ezra notes that it's missing the Aleph. The uh, person who eats forfeits their Das. If you don't have discipline, what are the laws of kashras? The laws of kashras instill a sense of discipline, self-control, das. Or I'd put it to you the following way. We live in two parallel universes simultaneously. On the one hand, we are animals. We have everything in common with an animal. We eat and we eliminate what we ate and we reproduce. We are uh, very similar to the animal world. We live in the physical universe. And because of it, we have an animal soul. The animal soul like an animal, has impulses and instincts and desires and temptations and seeks pleasure. But we also were endowed with a godly soul. And the godly soul is defined by discipline, self-control. And I would say 
one of the defining features of a human being differentiated from an animal is a human being has self-awareness. The animal has no self-awareness. An animal doesn't think about, you know, how do I look? How am I perceived? Who do I, who do I want to be? An animal says, I'm hungry now and satisfies that, satis- that urge. An animal says, I want this now and satisfies that urge. An animal wants to eliminate and lifts its leg on that tree. An animal has an impulse and it acts on the impulse, but the animal lacks self-awareness. Human being is capable of stepping outside himself or herself and saying, who do I want to be? How do I want to live my life? What is meaning? How do I fear, appear to others? How do I impact relationships? The animal doesn't have that capacity. That's das. Das is self-awareness. Das is self-control. Das is the capacity to make choices with a certain sense of context and vision beyond the impulse and beyond the instinct of the moment. So says the Ibn Ezra, it's missing the Aleph because at the moment a person can't exert, can't express the self-control to maintain the proper diet, they forfeited their das. person who says, I can't live without that food has no das. They are like the animal who can't live without eating at that moment. The way to achieve and the way to express the higher level das, the way to achieve or express self-awareness, self-control, discipline, spirituality, is to live with a certain level of self-control. And that's where the Torah continues. That, these are the psukim I really wanted to get to. Because the Torah wraps up its whole discussion here about kashras and different animals and creepy crawlies. This is what I wanted to get to. Pasuk Memdalet. And why is it that you should veloti tamu bayaminit mesim bum? Do not, um, do not uh, become tame by eating these things and then you'll become tame. Why? Ki ani Hashem alokechem, I am the Lord your God. Vihis kadishtem, vihisem kedoshim. Ki kadosh ani. Why is it that you should do this? Because I am Hashem. Sanctify yourself and then you will be holy. For I am holy. And don't contaminate yourself through any of these things. This word, his kadishtem, is his pael. It's a reflexive. You do it to yourself. When you practice discipline and self-control, when you live with self-awareness, when you forge and mold your, mold your identity, and you're not simply the result and product of inertia, of impulse, of desire, then the result is you have transformed yourself into a holy being, ani, and you will be holy. And why should you be? Because God is holy Himself. Yes? Maybe, yeah, it's a good point. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. Says Rashi, "Kani Hashem alokechem, kishem shani kadosh shani Hashem alokechem, kach v'his kadishtem, kitshuas atzmechem lamata." The same way I am holy, I am God, and I am holy. You have the capacity to transform yourself and to be holy like me. So, kitshuas atzmechem, make yourselves holy lamata, on earth the way I am in heaven. What is Rashi saying? Gersh Baruch tells us, yes, you have an animal instinct. Yes, you are an animal. You have an animal soul. Yes, you have physical pleasure in the physical world. But you are also an extension of me. I breathe life into you. And just like I am the epitome of discipline, says God, I instilled and breathed the capacity for discipline and self-awareness and self-control into you. So when you use that tool, when you use that capacity, you become like me. That's the definition. This is the Jewish definition of holiness. Holy is not, uh, you know, I don't know. Holy is not some flighty, lofty, lost and whatever. Holy is discipline. Yes, you know, I love uh, Karbach um, davening as much as anybody else. That's spirituality. But that's not holy. Holy is the ability to look at your animal self and say, I'm not going to indulge. I'm not going to satisfy that urge. I'm not going to give in to the moment. I am going to be like God. I'm going to realize the potential God put in me. I'm going to express my godliness by being disciplined and by having self-control, by doing things in a distinguished way. And that is holiness, and that's when you become God-like. Holiness doesn't happen to you. You know, the people who say, I'm waiting for that moment. I need to be inspired. 
I need to witness something or hear a lecture or, or holiness should happen to me. The Hiskadishtim, Hispah, reflexive, we make ourselves holy when we use this, uh, when we express this, this quality. It says Rashi, V'yisem Kiddushim Lefanai. Make yourself holy before me, says God. When you take that step and meet me halfway, I will uplift you and continue on that path. And why should you make yourself holy for I am holy? Because I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. So you should be holy because I am holy. Well, what in the world does one thing have to do with the other? Well, come on. God, how long are you going to hang this over our heads having taken us out of Egypt? If you want us to be holy because it imitates you, because it achieves the godliness within us, then just tell us that. What connection is there to the notion of God having taken us out of Egypt? A. B. Normally we describe God took us out of Egypt. It doesn't say that here. What does it say? Normally it says, Ani Hashem HaMotzi What does it say here? Ani Hashem HaMa'aleh. What does Ma'aleh mean? Who lifted you out of Egypt? Why hear a ma'ala when it normally says hamotzi? Look at Rashi. Ani Hashem amaleschem, amenasha tiskablu mitzvosai alisiyeschem. I took you out on condition for you to obey my commandments. I took you out to become my nation, to give you this mission. I didn't take you out just because I was looking to emancipate a slave nation. I didn't take you out to become some secular political entity. I took you out to give you a mission to model holiness and self-control to the world. That's the connection. Or Dover Acharashi says, Normally it says God took us out here. It says He elevated. God God says, if, if the only reason, if I took you out of Egypt for the, for the one reason of not eating shratzen like the rest of the world, then that would be worth it. Dayam, dayenu, that would be enough. That would be enough. Hama'aleh, you are elevated. You are, you are uh, so different just by this experience of being careful with what you eat. The Sfarno, look at the Sfarno. It's a very important comment here. It says the Sfarno. In order to be holy, in order to be eternal, in order to recognize your Creator and to walk in His way, that was the point. That's why I took you out of Egypt, explains this far now. I wanted you to be like me. I want you to imitate me. When you make a little effort, when you show that little bit of discipline, God says, I will elevate you. There's nothing more meaningful. The experience of feeling elevated, the experience of expressing one's godliness, the experience of feeling that they're imitating the Ribbon Shalom, of feeling true meaning, is much more pleasurable than whatever pleasure was given up in the process. Whatever was forfeited in the process is nothing compared to the pleasure and the satisfaction and the fulfillment of the achievement of being godlike, of being disciplined. Says the Svarno, And it's worthwhile for you to make this effort. It's not easy. It's not easy to give up what the rest of the world does. The rest of the world travels and they can go to every restaurant on the planet and we are very limited. The rest of the world can relationship-wise and we have laws that limit us. It's not easy. But make this effort. Sforo explains, what's the connection? God says, when I took you out of Egypt, I wanted to feel as close as possible to you. I want you to feel as close as possible to me. How do you feel closeness? Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. How do you feel closeness? By likeness. If you're different, then it's hard to feel close. It's when you're aligned and when you are similar and when you 
have similar values, pursue similar values, have similar lifestyle, that likeness creates closeness. So Hashem says, I don't want you to be through an intermediary. I don't want it to be, I'm God, and you live this physical, animalistic life. How close could we possibly be if we can't relate to one another? But if you're like me, living a disciplined life of self-control, of godliness, of holiness, then you are being like me. And when you are like me, you are close to me. And that was why I took you out. That was really what it's all about. And then the Svarna says, Zos Torah Sabayim the next Pasuk, Zosi Kavanas Vatam Yisurei Machalos Shehizkir Lamala. And this says the Svarna is the source of all the laws of Kashrus. Why do we have these laws of Kashrus? Why do we have this limit on our diet? Is it for health reasons, the Rambam suggests? Is it because you are what you eat, as the Ramban suggests? Is it because non-kosher food is dirty, like the Rashbam suggests? There's all different reasons which are given. But ultimately the Svarno says, it has to do with discipline. One of the biggest temptations that we have, according to Freud, it's a sexual urge, but we all know that all day long we want to eat, we're tempted to eat, we desire to eat, we eat even when we're full, we want the next thing to eat. Look at the country we're living in, look at the obesity rates, look at the health rates. You tell me about the urge to eat and how we're doing with it. When you look at the obesity rates in the world we live in and the, and the health, the decline in health and so on. We're not doing very well. It's a very, very powerful Yitzhahara. So it represents the core vehicle through which we can attain holiness. Now the problem is, when we make all these unhealthy foods in a kosher way, we're violating what was the very meaning and purpose of kashras. The whole purpose of kashras was to not overindulge. The whole purpose of kashras was to be regulated, was to be disciplined, was to have self-control, was to eat to live and not live to eat. What have we done? We've created a world where everything's kosher, including the most unhealthy foods, and we uh, overindulge in ridiculous quantities and so on and so forth. We've undermined what was the essence of kashras. Kashras, says the Svarno, is the instrument, is the vehicle to be godlike, to be healthy, to eat normal portions of healthy food and to live a healthy lifestyle what kashras does is, it is supposed to, it's designed to remind us to be mindful with everything we put in our mouth. The laws of Lashon Hara are there to be mindful of everything that leaves your mouth. The laws of kashras are there to be mindful of everything that goes into your mouth. But now again, we've, we have so many kosher options that we've, we're not mindful at all. Because we just dive right in mindlessly to all the things that are technically kosher. What kashras was designed is there to make us mindful. That is the essence, that is the essence of, of kashras. Look at the kliyakar. Says the kliyakar. Kani Hashem amala eschem. Aperish Rashi kosher lama paradzeb mitzvah zu yosem ebishar mitzvos. God took us out of Egypt not to eat creepy crawly things? Really? Dayam, Dayenu, that's enough? Shabbos, okay, I understand. They're, uh, not to eat bugs? That's why he took us out of Egypt? Ubein, Bein Asheretz, sorry, V'od, Yesh kama shinuyim, Bein Asheretz HaShoretz, Ubein Asheretz HaRomeis HaLaaretz, HaDavuk B'Yosef B'Karka, She'en Holucho Nikar, Kibo Nemar HaLaaretz, V'lo B'Shoretz. Uberomes is Kirtumba Itzal HaNefesh, Shenemar, the Torah differentiates between the way it talks about the flying creepy crawly and the crawling creepy crawly in terms of the language it uses. So it says the Kliyagar, Therefore I say, He says that the closer you are to the ground, the more physical and the more attracted you are to the physical. What happens? What's the default? Something that walks on four legs is facing the earth that it comes from and to which it will return. It sees itself as simply, purely the physical. The animal that walks on all four is purely physical, faces the earth, and is purely physical. Says the Kliyaka, the human being, in distinction, the human being walks on two. We stand upright. We look heavenward. We may begin, we may be rooted. We may, our origins may be the earth. But we strive and we long and we yearn and we aspire 
towards the spiritual, towards the towards the heavens. So that's why the creepy crawlies that crawl on the earth versus those that fly in the air, those that fly in the air are a little better than the ones that are on the earth, he suggests. Torah speaks of harsher language, uh, more repulsive language of the creepy crawly on the earth. It's more connected to the earth, and we are supposed to be aspiring towards the heavens. We're supposed to be yearning for more. Which is the, uh, the then says in the next paragraph, the Tamashchita Yochiach, and this is the reason for the laws of slaughtering. The animal who is connected to the earth needs shchita in order to shchita literally separates excises the animal from the connection to the earth so that we can eat it and consume it and it can nourish us as we aspire for the spiritual. But the fish who's not exposed to the earth, the fish that are surrounded by water don't require shechita. They don't need us to do anything to separate it from the earth because it was never connected to the earth to begin with. So a fish can just be gathered and clubbed over the head. And what about the bird? The bird lives above the earth, has to land at some point, but the bird has to fly. And that's why the shechita of the bird only requires one simon. An animal, birds, animals, we have two simon. The kana and the vesha. We have the uh, trachea and we have the esophagus. We have the air pipe and we have the food pipe. So when it comes to an oaf, when it comes to a fowl, to do shechita, you have to cut, cut the rove, the majority of one simon. In order for it to be a valid shechita, you have to cut the majority of one of the two. To shech to behema, you have to cut both. So that's the kliyakar. Why are the laws different? A behema requires, you have to cut rove shnei simonim. The oaf requires, you have to cut rove one simon. And the fish requires nothing. Why? So says the kliyakar, it all has to do with how connected it is to the earth. The more connected you are to the earth, the more effort needs to be made in order to create that separation so that the one who imbibes, who absorbs, who eats you is not brought down to the earth. The less connected you are to the earth, the less of a uh, is required to sever to create that disconnect. So he says if water, the fish are in water, is an environment that is, is pure, then why is water one of the liquids? We also have in this week's Parsha, when a food becomes contaminated, in order for a food to be eligible, to become Tameh, the food first has to be wet. And it can be wet from any of the liquids, the seven liquids, known by the acronym Yad Shachat Dam. Yad Shachat Dam. Yain Dam, the whole list, Yad Shachat Dam. So one of them is um, Yad Shachat Dam. The mem is Maim. So, says the Kliyakar, maybe you're bothered. If the fish live in water, which is a pure environment, why is water one of the liquids that can be machshir, that can uh, allow or make a food eligible to accept tumma? He says, be patient, in Parshas Chukas, we'll talk about that. But anyway, that's the Kliyakar, fascinating, that the rules of shechita, whether it needs shechita or how many simanim of shechita, all correspond with its connection to the earth, because ultimately kashras is designed and is there in order to, in order to elevate us. That is its, that is its purpose. Um, that is its purpose. Okay. Lastly, let's go back and look at the Orchaim. Says the Orchaim. Why should you be careful what you eat? Does God really care? Yeah, God cares very much. Not necessarily about what you're eating, but He cares that you be godly. Be capable of discipline, self-control, self-awareness, and diet. That's how you emulate Him, and that's how He feels close to us. Says the Orchaim. Perush umashuna uma. Yisrael is lekedusha taharish labach Hashem likara loka el Yisrael lezet zarech laharchik menatuma. Jewish people are distinguished in our capacity for this. We seek purity. The rest of the world, the way they dress, pop culture, its its uh, lack of boundaries in terms of promiscuity. And I wrote this article, which uh, spread more than any other article I ever read. Wrote the one on the uh, Fifty Shades of Red, having to do with the. Um, 
Society has not evolved in the positive, we've devolved. Society has regressed morally in terms of uh, healthy boundaries. Where anything goes, there's no more shame, there's no sense of boundaries. And uh, says the Archaim, we the Jewish people are to be distinguished in the opposite direction. We have boundaries. And we have the capacity to say we're not going to indulge. And we're not going to give in to an impulse or a desire. We have the ability to distinguish and thereby to elevate. And that's why God took us out. What did the Archaim mean? He means... God says, this is why I took you out of Egypt. I took you out of Egypt to be a nation that has a mission to teach the world. And in what area can you teach the world more than any? By striving for holiness. By striving for sanctity. By carrying yourself in a holy way. Your speech should not be the same speech as the nations of the world. You don't have to use curses and repulsive language. Your dress doesn't have to be the immodest dress of the rest of the world. Where your reading material and your watching material doesn't have to be what the world uh, has deemed appropriate or, or permissible. We strive for more. Hashem says, that's not why I took you out. I took you out, not just not just I emancipated you, but to elevate you. And how are you elevated? By being disciplined and by seeking holiness. If you make an effort, then Hashem will be your partner and protect you. If you make a pledge to be careful what you eat, to be careful what you watch, to be careful what you say, if you're working on it, then Hashem will help you by preventing you from being in circumstances, by preventing you from accidentally eating the wrong things, by preventing you, by, by uh, enabling and by uh, uplifting you further. Remember, we asked, why the redundancy? Pasuk says, So, what does it mean to, in the reflexive, in the Hispael, to make yourself holy? means to place boundaries, to place fences, to go above and beyond, to put fences. And I can only dwell on those who are Karshborch's presence can only be felt on those who separate themselves not in an elitist way but those who separate meaning distinguish themselves in pursuing the spiritual and the holy and lastly the Orachayim says why does Hashem say this is why I took you out of Egypt because the Hashras Hashchina. He says in the second paragraph, Pasuk Memei. Od Yertzalomar Kiena Kodesh Baruch Hu Kiviyachol Yachol Yachid Shmo LaHashu Shkinaso Ela Al Mushlam Imin Harahahu Ulazelo Yichid Shmo Aleim. God, who is the very definition of holiness, cannot rest His presence on something which is unholy. So we have to transform ourselves into being holy as a prerequisite for God to rest His presence. When we were in Egypt, we were unholy. God's presence couldn't be felt. He took us out. He elevated us in order to transform us into a vessel that He would be able to reside in. So we continue to fight this fight and struggle with the struggle. We continue to try to elevate ourselves and to always leave Egypt, meaning to leave those levels of Tumah and to be the kinds of people who are vessels that a Kosh Baruch Hu can rest in. Have a fantastic week.